Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Day Beautiful podcast feed. My name is Adam. I am the founder of Day Beautiful, the website and podcast where you can discover debut authors. If you like what you hear here, check out Day Beautiful on daybeautiful.net and on all social media at Day Beautiful. And welcome to yet another First Taste reading series where I invite an author to read five minutes from their work to kickstart your week off with great literature and put you in a really good mood. Today's guest is a writer from New York City. He is a graduate of Rutgers University and received his MFA from the University of Texas at El Paso. His debut memoir book you'll find out why i'm hesitant to call it anything specific i'm never fine seeds and spasms on loss is out now please welcome joseph leza hey joseph how you doing today i'm doing well i'm doing well thank you for having me of course your memoir um well me- well actually before i even jump into it is it a memoir is it an essay collection what is what is your book <laughs> It has many different distinctions. The best way I can honestly put it, like I I have termed it a collage memoir because it is very much a collection of essays with some poetry in there. But since Mm -hmm. it because doesn't follow, I guess, a traditional linear structure, I hesitate to call it a traditional memoir. Um, So collage memoir seems to be like the best term for it. For sure. And and the book is titled I'm Never Fine, Scenes and Spasms on Loss. Um, tell readers a little bit about it. You mentioned like the structure, but what are, what's what's the bones? What's the heart of the book? So the book itself profiles a chapter in my life where I was a caregiver to my father when he was um, ailing from pancreatic cancer. And then, you know, it profiles um, there are three essential essential sections. There is um, pre-diagnosis. And then the two larger sections are, you know, the diagnosis, the treatment, the passing. And then the final section is like everything that pretty much came after the fallout, all of the reckonings, both, you know, emotional, personal, what have you that tend to occur in the years that follow. So, yeah, it basically just profiles that whole period and just kind of examines it from a variety of different lenses. The book was really born out of the fact that, um, you know, I, I didn't start writing it until about, I was at least five, six years uh, past the actual passing, the catalytic event, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it, and had noticed that my, <laughs> the grief process for me wasn't exactly rolling out the way that, you know, so many books will tell you, online articles will tell you, you know, armchair experts will tell you, like, it's all going to happen in this very neat little way. There are going to be five phases. You're going to go through them all. And then at the end, you're going to be this brand new person and you'll, your verb will return and you'll be fully over it. And it just was not at all happening that way at all for me. I mean, I, they tell you that it's, you know, it's going to be anger. It's going to be depression. It's going to be bargaining. It's going to be acceptance. And for me, it was just flat out anger. I was just a purely angry person for a number of years. I could not, dispel it for whatever reason. And I began to sort of double down on the own anger that came out of, um, you know, that part of my life, because not only was I angry about what happened, I was also angry because I couldn't seem to grieve the right way. It wasn't happening the way that all of these periodicals and articles were telling me it was going to happen. So really the book itself was written as a journey to kind of 
divorce myself from that Mm -hmm. notion that loss and recovery was going to happen in this neatly structured way. And that instead it was really just going to be quite messy and that you're just going to have to deal with it uh, the way that it naturally Mm -hmm. happens and the way that your body and your mind reacts to it. Yeah. Yeah. I um, haven't read the full book yet. Um, you know, I was introduced to you by Greg Mania recently via, yeah, he, he just said you would love this book. And, and, and I, you know, both my parents are still living and um, just reading it and like the, the emotional connection I felt as like, we're probably similar age within like at least five to 10 years, most likely. Right. And it's like, yeah, I, I'm just rambling because like what I've read so far has been so beautiful. Um, and and I can't wait for readers to discover you more. Um, what will you be reading for us today? So I'm going to be reading uh, a bit from uh, an essay that is in the second part of the book called How to Shave Your Dying Father. Um, and this piece for me is, you know, incredibly special because it really sort of, it, it very much exemplifies what I try to do in this particular book and the way that I try to write it. I try to make it, you know, accessible and I try to make it more than just a pure account of what happened. Mm -hmm. You know, if I were, if I were to just list out the things that happened in order, that's all it would be is an account. And if I'm going to make it, if I'm going to elevate it in some way, if I'm going to make it accessible to people that, you know, perhaps have not been through this process, um, but, you know, is inevitably a process that, all of us are going to go through in some way, shape and form. Mm -hmm. I wanted to kind of find, you know, different ways to structure the essays that felt, you know, emblematic of what they were representing. So in this particular piece, I'm recounting, you know, the time when I was giving, you know, my father, um, when I was shaving him when he was in hospice, a very surreal experience for a child, no matter how old you are, because, you know, you have this tenderness and this tension that's juxtaposed against this moment that feels so unnatural because you're performing this act upon a person who at one point or another taught you yourself how to do it and um yeah so I for me like when I when it came down to deciding what I was going to write about uh and I was looking back on that time of my life from a period of distance I really each essay topic was really more than anything else born out of an image, some sort of lasting image that for whatever reason I couldn't shake. And that was really what indicated to me that there was something there that needed to be explored. And this was one of them. Awesome. We'll take it away. Part five, the first strokes. There's no way to straddle the bed and attempting to do this while leaning over the head would require a straight razor and the skills of a seasoned barber, neither of which I possess. Still, I need to find a way to hold him steady, because in this transaction, at least one of us shouldn't be suppressing the shakes. So I lower my knee onto the side of the mattress, taking careful steps not to mistake one of his legs for a ruffle in the blanket, accidentally crushing him. Turning his face towards the window, I rest my palm along the crest of his forehead and whisper into a near-translucent earlobe. Dad, Dad, it's it's still me. Um, I'm going to start, okay? You let me know if I'm hurting you. Ah, that's all I get from him. Not permission or protest, more like acknowledgement, as if he's telling me, ah, yes, 
the boy who shaved his cheeks in an upward motion for an entire year. And now he's going to take a cleaver to my face. Have at it. I pause to laugh at my uncanny ability to add context where there is none. At the fact that the guttural noise I heard was likely involuntary and probably just the venting of acid reflux. But I like the fact that dad's still digging at me. I like the fact that my hand's not trembling anymore. So I begin. I place the blade just above the three sparse gray hairs that suggest what once was a sideburn. Starting in the more planar areas should allow me a few practice runs while limiting the odds of hitting a snag. In an undisturbed motion, I pull it halfway down the slope of his cheek, leaving behind a freshly pruned ribbon of turf. Into the basin go the soapy fragments of him, a swirl, a swish, and I finish the stroke. The work is good. Clean edges and well-maneuvered corners evoke more pride than the simple stroke of a razor should be afforded. Maybe it's the herbal cocktail smeared across his face, but he smells like fresh-cut grass. And now I'm lining up for another run. Only this time, I'm 11. Pushing through the expansive yard that sits in front of our old English colonial, I round the trees and mulched flower beds with the exactitude of a Formula One racer. The Walkman at my waist beats out a mixtape pilfered from weeks of the noontime hot 100. My lungs fill with exhaust and lawn clippings, and I am king of the earth, the king of the summer. Until I'm caught by the glint of sun off of silver aviator frames that peek around the corner of the garage. He's watching me again. First it was through the side light, then the drapes of the living room window. Each time I catch him, he scurries, only to be found minutes later posted at a nearby turret. I seethe, throttling the control lever. If he doesn't trust me to do this on my own, he might as well do it himself. So I raise my pointer in accusation long enough for the mower to veer in the liberty of my one-handed grasp. Out of my mouth comes the scrape of metal as the motor housing rebounds, leaping into the air and cutting out dead upon landing. He steps from around the corner, and I wheel the contraption to the side to survey the damage. There, poking through the dirt, freed from the brush that once hit it, the root of our cherry tree. It is his cheekbone. My arms snap back as soon as I feel the razor lift against it, and sure enough, the dusting of scruff had obscured it, the nodule poking through the sunken terrain of his face, but it doesn't bleed or even flush. The realization stops me from swallowing my own fist, but not from picking up the stare of a single brown fish eye. All these years later, he watches me still. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, yeah, your book, like I said, you know, I'm like 50 or so pages in and it's just the type of book that I feel people need yeah like you said we're all going to go through this um at one point in our lives different different ways obviously it might not be cancer might not be a disease might just be old age um what was it like for you actually putting it down on page like you you kind of talked about your anger for so long but once you started writing about this experience about your father about your relationship what was it like for you you know, the funny part is that I never really intended to write about this. <laughs> like, this, 
started really as an assignment that I had uh, when I was in grad school. I was taking a class on the lyric essay in my creative writing program, and I had entered that program um, with the assumption that I was a fiction writer. I mm -hmm. never oh. planned to write about my own life. I didn't think my life was interesting enough to write about. Um, but in this lyric essay, you know, I was exposed to writers like, you know, Joan Didion, Leah Purpura, you know, John Degada, and they had found these wonderful, fictive, compelling ways to write about their life. And we were challenged to do the same. And I drew from this period of my life because it seemed like there was the most there there. Um, and so when I wrote this piece, I came away at the end of it feeling like I had finally dealt with something that I could not find the proper way to deal with until that very moment. And as my program pressed on, you know, whether it was in poetry classes, fiction classes, nonfiction classes, a lot of my work, the great bulk of my work showed itself to be influenced by either directly or indirectly by this period of my life. And again, each and every time I would find a way to get it on paper, I somehow felt better. Like I felt like I was doing the work that I should have done years before and couldn't figure out a way to do. So yeah, I mean, I'll it was incredibly hard to revisit this chapter of my life, but as cliche as it is to say, you know, it was, it was hard, but it was necessary. You know, the work needed to be done because I, I think I realized that I would never be able to write anything else until I wrote this first. And once I don't want to, yeah. Once you, you discover your writing list, when do you lean full into it? When does it, when did you realize this is something that you need to explore further? I mean, towards the end, uh, definitely towards the end of my program. So okay. for, for my graduate school program, I had um, our thesis was to be a full length manuscript once you chose a discipline. And at that point, I had about four or five pieces um, and I knew that there was the start of something here. So mm -hmm. regardless of what it was that I may have wanted to do when I entered the program, I think I knew at that point, like there is there is a longer work to be written and I clearly have the start of something and I would be a fool not to naturally see where it takes me. So that's when I, it was in 2019 is when I began like really writing in earnest. Thank you so much to Joseph Leza for sharing that story and reading with us today. You can find him at josephleza.com and on Twitter and Instagram at lesdothis. That's L-E-Z-Z-D-O-O-T-H-I-S. Let's do this. You can find Day Beautiful at daybeautiful.net and on all social media at daybeautiful. As always, I'm Adam. This is Day Beautiful, and you're all beautiful.